0: just get myself sorted out finish at 10:15 okay turn to Hebrews and just before we get into chapter 5 I just want to maybe bring a couple of things into sharper focus. You've noticed already, at the end of chapter 2, we were told that Melchizedek, the risen and glorified Jesus, that he is a merciful high priest and a faithful high priest because he makes or made propitiation the sins of the people. So that's one way that he ministers. He deals with the sin in his perfect sacrifice but there's a a sense in which he's got to apply it to us before it becomes uh, realized in our lives. Amen? So that's his first mediation. I want you to see that these things are preparatory. They're not, if you like, his continual life work. He's not there to continually be making propitiation for our sins because it's a once-for-all thing. But in order to enter into that holy place and be part of the corporate Melchizedek, which is where he's taking us, the sin issue has to be dealt with. So we mustn't see him like an Old Testament priest who's constantly there to be forever forgiving us our sins. That would be Old Testament. That would not be New Covenant. Hello? So he does it and it's done. That's how it ought to be. And then again we find at the end of chapter 4 that he comes again. This time he comes as a merciful high priest and he's able by the living word to separate between soul and spirit so that anything which is of the flesh can be separated from that which is of the spirit in order that we don't continue in the flesh. Because nothing of the flesh can live in the holy place. Hello. So these are the two things sin's got to be got rid of, the flesh has got to be got rid of, before the living in that holy place can become a reality. Now in the New Testament you'll find that there are actually three crosses, and we need to understand this. I'm not put this in the notes, but just to help you a little to see this with clarity which the Bible speaks about. First of all, there is the cross on which Jesus died for our sins. Once for all. That's a once for all deal. It's never to be repeated because it's eternal and total in its effect. Amen? And it's a once for all deal to experience that power of the cross in our lives. And then we find a second work of the cross is us being crucified with Christ. I'm not going to develop this in any way, but just to, just to point that out to you, and again, that's a once-for-all deal, which is particularly taught us in Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 6 and right through to chapter 8, really. That's where this is dealt with, where the, the old man, which is three strands, what I have by inheritance through Adam, what my circumstances have shaped me to be. I could have had very bad parents, I could have had all kinds of things which have wounded and twisted and and perverted me, and and so I'm now shapen by the iniquity of my circumstances, of my upbringing particularly, okay? And then the third factor is what I myself have done in my my early uh, rebellious years, whatever I, because I can't blame the devil for everything, And I can't blame my parents for everything. Amen? I've got to be honest about me. And what the stupid and wicked things that I chose to do, and I can't blame anybody else for that. Now those three things make the three strands of what the Bible calls the old man. And the old man is not the flesh, it's quite distinct and separate from the flesh. And uh, if you want to get clarity on this, you could take the set of tapes which are are called uh, The Power of the Cross, where I take time to carefully teach all these things. There's a lot of confusion in the Church about these things. Even in the NIV, for example, the translation of the NIV shows to me the confusion of the translators. Because they take the word sarx, which is the Greek word for flesh, and translate it as sinful nature, which is totally nonsense. Theologically, that's nonsense. It's not the sinful nature because that was dealt with once for all when Jesus took us in himself and took us to death in him and so the old man has been put to death. What? Don't you know that your old man was crucified with Christ? You were crucified with Christ so that your old man was destroyed, okay? That's a, again, that's a once for all deal and it's a matter of faith when you decide to appropriate that. I remember Eileen, uh, we were in India at the time, we'd been to, I think, our first holiness conference. It was a wonderful preacher there, and he preached on good old-fashioned holiness, and Eileen went forward, and I, I remember her being counseled by this wonderful man, and she said to him, look, I reckon myself dead to sin until I'm blue in the face, and it still doesn't work. And then on the way home, sitting on the back of the motorcycle that I was driving, she got the revelation that her old man was crucified. I, she just she saw it. And there's a moment when you see these things. And somewhere on the road between uh, Nasik and Bombay, Eileen's old man was thrown over the hedge and never ever troubled her again. It was a, it was a crisis experience, and I saw the transformation. That's a once for all thing. So there's, there's Jesus dying for me, me dying with him, both once for all complete works, which I just appropriate by faith. But then there's a third dimension of the cross, which is the continual crucifixion of the flesh. And you find this, uh, for example, in uh, Luke. Come to Luke chapter nine, for example. That's a good place to look. Let's hear hear what Jesus says there. Luke chapter 9, and come in, I think, at verse 23, if I remember correctly. Verse 23, yes. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me it's a continuous daily thing for whoever desires to save his soul life will lose it and whoever desires, whoever loses his soul life for my sake will save it unto life eternal it says in some translations that was, you, you get rid of your soul life in order to have it replaced with, with your new spiritual life Amen now that's a daily thing that's something which Jesus continually practiced. He lived every day, every moment of every day, putting to death the flesh, never ever once doing anything in his own will or by his own strength or to please himself. Now that's, the, de- that's the, the putting to death of the flesh. Now that's a continuous thing. And there's a power in grace to live that way. There's not a once for all crisis that you can appropriate where this thing is dealt with forever. Amen? And you mustn't confuse the old man and all that represents and the constant war with the flesh which never ceases. And that's why in Romans chapter 8 we're told there. Let me just turn to that for a moment. I just felt I needed to clarify these things, although they're not in the notes. I hope that's okay with you. Romans chapter 8 has come here. and, according, and and on account of sin he condemns sin in the flesh that the righteousness requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit in other words there's a walking first of all not according to the flesh before you can walk in the spirit it's interesting if you study the Bible how many times religious people are told to stop doing things the wrong way before they can start to do them the right way Like, when Jesus teaches on prayer, he first of all teaches how not to pray before he teaches how to pray. When he teaches on fasting, he teaches how not to fast before he can teach on how to fast because we've developed, many of us, religious habits which prevent us from coming into the real spiritual truth that God wants us to have. And we have to learn, first of all, how not to walk in in the flesh before we can walk in the Spirit. Because it's a natural instinct when you've run your own life for decades to take charge and do things your way before you even realize that you've done it. Now the second function that we read about at the end of Hebrews 4 is the mediation of the Word and of the high priest who is who is merciful and sympathetic. But he's saying, look, I lived 33 and a half years in humanity and I never once yielded to the flesh in all those 33 and a half years and I'm going to pour grace into your life so that you can live the same way because we've got to accept the principle that the Melchizedek priesthood is not in bondage to sin and isn't in the activity of the flesh and there's no way we can function and be part of that glorious priesthood if we're still uh, have not resolved and dealt with these things. Okay? Now this is a mediation of this high priest to bring us into a relationship where sin and the flesh, we've learned the power of the propitiation and we've learned the power of grace so that we are not a prisoner to these things. Now does that mean that we never sin? Well, Theoretically, it's possible, but in practice, if it happens, it's an occasional event which we know how immediately to deal with. We do not tolerate it as the norm. What? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! That's the first time this is said in Romans chapter. When you come down to verse 15, although it looks the same in English, the Greek is a bit different and what it really is saying is what shall we sin even once that grace may abound? In other words, is, it, is the power of the cross to reduce the level of sin from sinning all the time to sinning occasionally? Is that what we're to expect? And the answer is, God forbid! There's a power where sin and the flesh are seen immediately as as the exception which is as abhorrent to you as it is to God and you fly to him for an immediate resolution of that so that your, your life more and more becomes a life where you walk not in the flesh. Okay? Now it says this in Galatians, it says this. Um, let me just get that phrase absolutely right. I just feel I needed to say this a little, because there's no way we can practicalize the the Melchizedek priesthood if we're dealing with these what the Bible really regards as elementary things. Come to Galatians for a moment. Let's get that phrase just right. I can find it. I'm sorry, I'm just groping around for it. I just can't put my my eye on it for a moment. uh, It's verse 16. I said, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I'm just looking for another phrase which I can't find, which says, um, if we... I'm sorry? Yes, that's wonderful. Thank you. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. That's what I was after. I'm sorry, I just couldn't find it for the moment. Now, what we're being taught is this. You see, here I am today in San Antonio, Texas. Some of you guys are visiting. Let's, Let's take Mohan here. He lives normally in Hyderabad, India. And so imagine him on his bed this morning and he's thinking about home, thinking of his family, thinking of Hyderabad, India. Now he's not there. And so he cannot walk where he's not living. He can dream about Hyderabad, he can think about his kids, he can think about his wife, and he can long to be there, but practically he cannot be there because he's not living there. You can only walk where you are living. Hello? So if you live in the flesh, what are you going to walk in? If your thoughts are fleshy, if your desires are fleshy, what kind of walk are you going to walk? You're going to walk in the flesh. So, so it's where you live that determines where you walk. So if we're going to actually walk in the spirit, then we've got to have the kind of heart and, uh, and desire where we live in the spirit. I think it's 1 Peter 4, 6 which says, this is Peter writing, this, this old fisherman who got the revelation, and he said this, or, he says, Although put to death in the flesh, we live in the Spirit like God. That's an incredible statement, isn't it? Although we're put to death in the flesh, we live in the Spirit like God. And it's Peter saying that, and I can assure you, he wouldn't write it if he wasn't living it. Would you agree with that? It is scripture, but it's scripture born out of his experience. He's found a place where he he so lives in the spirit that the flesh has been put to death. Now, the the second purpose of, and it's a preparatory purpose, I want you to see, this is not what the Melchizedek priesthood is all about, but before he can bring us into where we're supposed to be and function the way we're supposed to function, he has to mediate... In such a way that sin is a done deal, and it's an issue that is not a botheration. at the worst, it rears its ugly head, and we know immediately how to flee to the blood and deal with it, but it's not our normal lifestyle. And the same is true of the flesh. We can be tripped up temporarily, and we can find ourselves momentarily moving into the flesh, but if we are walking the right way, all the alarm bells go up. Well, and we say, oh Lord, that was the flesh, forgive me. And, and we, we, we repent, and we're back in the spirit, and it may be that no one else notices, but, even, but you know you crossed the line, and God knows you crossed the line. And you get back into the spirit. Now, until that's accomplished in our lives by the, the high priestly mediation of this glorious risen... who is obviously Melchizedek then we cannot progress into where he wants us to come which is to live in the holy place with him and from that holy place rule and, and war as we've read several times in the Old Testament to bring us to that kind of priesthood we've got to go through those preliminary stages and if we adopt the Melchizedek priesthood position while we're still filthy and the devil can just stand there and laugh at us. And what's even worse, he can dishonor the name of Jesus. Yeah. He makes Jesus look powerless. And that's something which I, 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 I'm sure you do not want ever to happen. You don't, you don't want to be responsible for making Jesus powerless. Okay, let's move on now then. I just felt I wanted to get that in. Now come to the end of Hebrews chapter 4. And come to verse 14. Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He's already in that holy place in the heavenlies. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, let's just clarify one more point here. This is an automatic process which we've got to understand. It says this again and again in the scripture that sin finds its opportunity through the flesh and kills us. All right. So sometimes people are struggling with sin I mean, what they ought to be dealing with is the flesh because it's the flesh that's the door through which sin enters to kill us. Inevitably, flesh will lead to sin. It's as certain as the pull of gravity upon our physical bodies. The pull of the law of sin and death through the flesh is so carefully spelt out for us in the book of Romans chapter 7 and into the beginning of chapter 8. It's as relentless as gravity. And it doesn't matter who you are, what time of the day it is, what your nationality is, what's your geographical location. It doesn't, none of these things matter. If you jump off a building, you will accelerate to the ground at a predicted speed. Amen? The pull of gravity. And you can shout whatever you like. You can even say, I don't believe in gravity, I don't believe in gravity. You will still go down to the ground at the same speed. And it's interesting to study the history of aviation and see how men tried to conquer the law of gravity. It was, it was actually were Frenchmen. Let's tell you about the French, which made them desperate to learn to fly. And they did all kinds of crazy things and they invented all kinds of flying machines, but the weakness of all of them was that they relied on their own strength, and they tried desperately to overcome gravity by all kinds of bird-like machines, but all of them failed because it was their own physical strength that they were trying to use to conquer gravity. One guy even leapt off the Eiffel Tower, convinced that he was going to fly. Well, you know what happened to him? And it wasn't until man discovered a higher law, the law of aerodynamics, the first law of aerodynamics, that he suddenly discovered there was a power. Let me just see if I can demonstrate this. I take this curved piece of paper, and I'm going to blow on the top of it. Watch. I blow on the top, but what do we get? We get what's called lift. A partial vacuum is produced on the underside by the current of air. And that power, which is called lift, is the principle by which all modern aircraft fly. He discovered the power of the wind. And once you get into a plane, which is exploiting the law of aerodynamics, once you're up in the air, it doesn't feel as if gravity is around anymore. You feel of have conquered gravity. Well, you open the door and step out. You'll find it's still there. see, while you're in the plane and the power of the wind is giving you this incredible lift, you fly and you, you are supernaturally, if you like, overcoming the power of gravity, as long as you stay in the plane. Now, what it's saying here is that there is a law in the Spirit called the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. If you get into Jesus and stay there then the power of the Spirit can carry you in such a way is that the law of sin and death has no more pull over you. But it's only in Christ Jesus. You step out of Christ Jesus into self, beam! That law of sin and death will pull you down into the same old defeat which you've always experienced before. So the, 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 the principle is stay in Him. Amen? And then there's a power in grace which keeps us flying above all the pull of things which before pulled us into sin and into death. All right, let's now move on into chapter 5, please. I've just got one thing to say on, on page 25, and that is that the Levitical priesthood was only concerned with the outward actions... The Melchizedek priesthood is concerned with the inward attitudes of heart. It's no use looking good on the outside if the inside is still corrupt. If you were able to do outwardly the right things, you were blameless before the law. But if you even think the wrong things, you are guilty and condemned according to the new law and life of the new covenant and of the Melchizedek priesthood. So, so God wants to clean up on the inside. And the Melchizedek priesthood has the power to do that. The Levitical priesthood could only cover sin. The Melchizedek priesthood takes it away. Now come to chapter 5 of Hebrews. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God they're taken from men and they're appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins now as quite different from the Melchizedek priesthood where there is a once for all dealing with sin that never needs to be repeated in the Levitical priesthood it's a constant ministry which still does not accomplish its purpose it doesn't reduce the frequency of sin it doesn't do anything about sin it just provides a legal covering for that same sinful life to continue now if you listen to certain evangelical teaching you'd think you were still Levitical Lord thank you for the blood of Jesus uh, uh, that, that's forgiven me all the sins that I did last week and I thank you the blood will still be there when I live another week of failure next week that's no different to Levitical priesthood you listen to the, the liturgy of, say, the Anglican Church. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon us. We are most miserable sinners. We are not worthy to come into thy presence. But, Lord, we thank thee that thy mighty blood has cleansed us from the guilt and penalty of sin. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon us. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon us. That's, that's roughly what it says. In other words, thank you, Lord, for the blood which covers another week of failure. And I think it will still be there to go out and live another week of failure. I remember seeing an advertisement on the London Underground train by an evangelical uh, association. It said, this is Johnny. It's not that Johnny is living a life better than anybody else, but Johnny has found a way for his sins to be forgiven. If you would like your sins to be forgiven, then dial this number. I thought, what a message of hope that is to someone. I haven't found a way to see victory over sin, I've just found a way to get sins forgiven. That's not, that's not this, this is nothing more than a regurgitating of Levitical law. Amen? Okay, let's move on. So these priests were, were, were giving constant gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness now here's a different kind of sympathy which we must just touch on this you see Jesus is a sympathetic high priest he says yeah I know what it's like to live in humanity I know what it's like to be tempted to sin I know what it's like to be tempted to to move in the flesh but I never ever ever yielded to those things and I can show you a way that will cause you to live exactly the same way but this is a different, this is a priest. you know, you say, you say, pastor, I've got a problem with, with, with lust, and, and I find myself going to porn sites. He said, yeah, I have the same problem. That's, I mean, what sort of help is that? See, that's the wrong kind of sympathy. Yeah, I'm a sinner like you, but thank God for the blood, and I can't get victory over this either, but let's just sort of pray together that God still loves us and forgives us anyway. Now that's the kind of counsel that some pastors give to people, because they themselves are in the same problem. Can you see that's Levitical? That's the wrong kind of sympathy. We're both helpless sinners together. Well, that's some comfort, I suppose, in that, but it's not the answer that we're looking for. Let's read on. Because of this, verse 3, he is required, as for the people, and so also for himself, to be constantly offering sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor on himself. For he who is who is called by God, just he, but he, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. I'm sorry about that. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, "You are my son; today I've forgotten you." And he also said to another place, "You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek." Who in the in the days of his flesh, when he offered, let me just stop there. So here is here is this this glorious priest is appointed by an earth and I just want us to come now to verse 7 where I want us to see this great intercessory work who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. This is the first great work that Jesus did. This is telling us about what Jesus accomplished in the Garden of Gethsemane when he cried out to see the power of God deliver him. Now what it says in the Greek, and I mentioned it in the notes, is it's it, it, it's The word is, is that you, you're brought out from within You are brought out from within death. See, that's what he's praying. This is a, a preposition that has movement. It has the idea of being inside something... And then there's a power release to bring you from inside it to be outside it. Jesus was not praying, oh God, I don't want to die. He was praying, oh God, that when death has taken hold of me, when I've been pulled down into the deepest death that any man will experience by millions and millions of times, Father, I'm praying for a power to bring me out from within death. And he was heard. And we're told he was heard because of his godly fear. And let's let's, again, let's just pause on this and try and comprehend the balance of these two things. Of on the one hand, having such intimacy with God, he's our loving daddy that we can sit on his lap and he cuddles us and loves us, and yet at the same time, there's a godly fear. See, when it came to obedience, Jesus behaved like a soldier obeying his commanding officer. The word that's used again and again and again in the New Testament is a military term, command. And he obeyed his father's commands like a soldier who says, yes sir. That was his attitude to anything his father wanted him to do. And we've got to learn how these two dimensions of walking with God have got to stay in balance. Jesus is the perfect example of someone who had such intimacy with, with his father. There was such a love life between them but his attitude to anything his father required of him was more like a soldier on active military service than it was a son who just does what he feels like. It was never, ever that was in his mind at all. And he was heard, we're told, because of his godly fear. If you go through the New Testament, and particularly the Gospel of John from chapter 13 through 17, you'll find in the New Testament Ten times Jesus tells us that we can ask the Father for anything and he will do it for us. But you'll find every time it's conditioned by obedience. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Every one of those promises is is encased in the condition of obedience. He says, okay, you love me. Well, prove your love to me the way I prove my love to my father. I loved him. And so, because I loved him, I never ever dreamt of not totally and completely obeying him. And so I could ask my father for anything. Because I would only ask according to his will because I never wanted anything but his will. And whatever I asked he gave it to me I never ever ever asked the asked request of my father that he didn't do it for me even to the resurrection now he as we will see in a moment he not only obtained resurrection for himself but it was for all of us and this is, is another part of what I'm going to call the preparatory mediation as the high priest so he could bring us to where he wants to bring us these are all steps on the way dealing with sin, dealing with the flesh, now he's dealing with the need for resurrection. And he's acting as a high priest on behalf of us all, not only passing through those things himself, but he's carrying us with him, in him, so we become participant benefactors of what he's accomplished on our behalf it's like that trail, the trailblazer he's cut away through the jungle of human nature and sinful activity and he's cut a trail for us to walk in we just walk in him without the effort that he had to exercise he wrestled with great sweat, sweat drops of blood, he fought an incredible battle of faith, he wrestled with principalities and powers in a way that we can't understand but having obtained the victory It was for us. It was only for him, because he was taking us through in him to be the victor with him of those victories. Does that make sense to you? This is all part of his mediation. I hope you can see this. Right, let's move on. Come to verse 8. Of hebrews 5 though he was a son yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered for him to come down to earth as as the almighty eternal son of god co-equal with the father for this fullness of god to somehow squeeze himself into human personality and then in that um incarnate state To then, as a man, learn obedience, it was a total new experience for him. He'd never ever had to obey before. How do you have to obey when you are God? So obedience was a new experience for him. But how perfectly he did it. He learned obedience. And he particularly learned obedience through the things which he suffered. When it wasn't pleasant, or desirable to do the Father's will, he still steeled himself to do it. And of course the great example is in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, oh Lord, when he saw what it was, it wasn't the pain of of physically dying, it was being made filthy with all that sin. When he saw this great trash can of all the foulest, filthiest things that the human race had ever dreamed of or done. All the, all the distilled uh, evil and wickedness of Adam's race. And Father said, son, you're going to have to drink this. He said, oh! It was the thought of being filthy with all that sin. Oh! If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless... Not your will, but my will be done. I still remember some, quite a few years ago now, at a conference in Great Britain where we had, uh, it was quite a, a conference where lots of needy people were at this conference and I, I was in what was called the pig pen, my job was to get with people who were thoroughly demonised and get them delivered. I used to do the same thing in some of Rainer Bonkey's conferences and, and I always seem to get this pig pen job, which was to get the demons out of people to get them delivered. And while I was thrilled to see them delivered, it's not a ministry that I particularly enjoy. Because it's so filthy and foul. I mean, I, and this particular man had come to this conference and was, was reaching out to be saved. But this man was the, was the worst sexual pervert i have ever met in my life. He'd been with innumerable women... He'd been in innumerable homosexual relationships, and now he was trying to find, uh, what's the word I want? He was now involved with animals. He was so full of demons, that like they were sort of popping out of his eyes, and yet this guy inside was crying out to be saved. And I got the job with one other gentleman to minister to him, and it took us all night. The demons were coming out, and they were coming out and screaming and hollering and and saying filthy, obscene things. And 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 as I was ministering to him, as these demons were manifesting, it was like the dirtiness of them was somehow spilling over onto me. I became sort of contaminated with the filth of these things. And we were getting weary, and we were just about done, and there were still loads of demons in this guy. And I was getting, and I just, I remember I was on my knees praying for grace to continue. I used to perhaps do stupid things in those days because I don't think I would pray all night now, but I did then. I was determined to get this thing finished. And then as we were getting weary, this demon in this man suddenly shouted out, as it was a tough, stubborn demon that wouldn't move. And it suddenly shouted out. And I remember I was down on my knees praying, and I felt like soft. Kashmiri wall just brushing my face and I felt this incredible presence I remember the comfort and strength of this presence I couldn't see anything but I could just feel like soft Kashmiri wall touching my face and then this demon said he's come and I said who's come? he said Jesus he's standing between you, he said alright lord we're going <laughs> and they were gone He came to help his failing servants. We were trying to do our best but we were clumsy and inexperienced. But he just came to help us in his gracious way. It was all He's come! We're going! (laughs) But I remember after that experience, I actually for a little while, if you understand me, I felt what it was like to be a sexual pervert. I felt the lust and, the, and it was like dirt sticking to me and I went to the shower and I showered and showered and showered to try and wash it off I know, I know it was spiritual but somehow it was almost felt it was physical and while I was doing that I was pondering thinking now that was this the demons in one man and I'm not pure And yet, when that that level of filthiness came upon me, I felt absolutely revolted by it. What must it have been like for Jesus? The total sin of the whole of Adam's race, every perverted, wicked, filthy, foul, immoral, unclean, violent, evil deed of any man that's ever done anything throughout the whole race of Adam, it was brought to a concentrate. And Father said, son, you're going to have to drink that. He said, oh, if it be possible. That's what it was, the filthiness of being made sin, I believe, that was what he he was uh, revolted by. But he said, nevertheless, not your will, my will be done. And I want us to get this deep, deep in, because you'll find this theme comes again and again and again and again through Scripture. That it's the obedience which is the power of the kingdom, and it's the power of the Melchizedek priesthood. He learned obedience through the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, verse 9, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. So we cannot be what he is or get to where he became in his humanity without accepting the same principle of obedience. Amen? So let's just think about these things. Chapter 2, dealing with sin. Chapter 4, dealing with the flesh. Now in chapter 5, we're dealing with the issue of obedience. Even when it's as painful and costly we could never get to where Jesus is it, it says in Hebrews 12 we've never strived unto blood striving against sin We're ne- he's never going to ask us to go where he's already been but there will be a degree to which he's going to ask us to obey him in unpleasant things which are going to cause us to suffer he learned obedience through the things which he suffered now no one's going to argue with God when he says "Look, I want you to, you know, I'm going to send you a million dollars in the post, go out and have a wonderful cruise on the Mediterranean, that's not hard to obey but what about the things that you don't particularly want to do Amen having been perfected in the learning experience of obedience, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you've become done of hearing. In other words, I want to get this across to you guys, but you've got an impediment of spiritual hearing which makes it hard for me to communicate. and that's the problem with the vast majority of christians and it's only going to be i believe a, a an elect company but it's our choosing not his that will be prepared to pay the price to come into this kind of relationship and ministry but if we do we will be the means of salvation for our nation and for our city but there's a price to pay And if we've already become dull of hearing, we're going to have to repent of that and ask God to give us back our hearing. I don't believe anybody, and it's not my subject today, but it's a very interesting study in the New Testament. I don't believe anybody, when they're born again, is born with defective spiritual hearing. There's no such thing as spiritual congenital deafness. We're all given the same ability as Jesus to hear our Father. But certain things have to happen. He has to tune that latent ability until we become sensitive and able to recognize the voice of God against the concophony of things we think we're hearing in the spirit realm, which may not be God. God, if you like, perfects the... the, Perception filter until we never make a mistake. Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 30 He said, Whatever I hear, I judge, because He did not use any other faculties than you and I have to hear His. You've got to believe that. His humanity was the same as ours. He didn't have a special hotline which we don't have. What, what, he, what he did was, he, we, we read this in Isaiah chapter 50, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn my uh, way back, but, but you gave me the ear of a disciple. And I won't read it all, but he says, you trained me to wake up in the morning and hear you. I wasn't rebellious. I didn't turn away back. I, I set my face like a flint. I, I was going to do the will of God, whatever it cost and whatever it meant. And so whatever I hear, said Jesus, I judge it. And I always judge rightly. I never make a mistake. And here's the reason. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him that sent to me. There's a a good old English word which is used in the King James Version, harken. And that's a much better translation of the Greek. Because the the word that's used in the Greek has got this idea of an obedient servant straining forward to listen very carefully. His purpose in listening carefully is not to decide whether or, or not to do what he's being told to do, but to make sure he doesn't make a mistake. He's already predisposed to obedience before he begins to listen. Hello. He's not going to say, well, I'm not sure I want to do that. But but he's he's already already decided, whatever I hear, I'm going to do it. That's why I want to hear very carefully to make sure I don't make a mistake. Now, that's the kind of hearing that's predisposed to obey, which we read about in the Lord Jesus. Now, we then go through a process. If we are obedient, and you can find this in the Scriptures very, very clearly in the Gospels, Jesus says that if you, if you weigh and listen and, and desire to do, he said, you're, you're going to get more and more revelation. You're going to hear better and better and better. Until in the end, your hearing becomes so sharp that you can hear God as infallibly as Jesus did. And you never make a mistake. But on the other hand, every time you choose not to obey, you dull your hearing until eventually you can't hear God at all. It's a process which we are in either way. Either we're perfecting our hearing or we are destroying our hearing by the choices we make of whether to obey or not to obey. And every day, we are either improving or impairing our ability to hear, depending on the, on the attitude of our heart. Some people can't hear God at all because they've spent years of not obeying. That's what we're being taught here. Verse 12, Well, verse 11, Of whom we have much to say, but it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, but he's a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, those who are mature, that is, those who by reason of use or by reason of exercise or by reason of practice have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And the tragedy is that if we don't obey, we don't stay where we are, we begin to lose what we've got, and we actually start to backslide, and people have to teach us again things which we once knew. And I'm not I don't intend to labor this, I think the, the teaching is obvious here. But God cannot minister to us the glories of the kingdom and the glories of the Melchizedek priesthood until we have the right kind of hearing to hear Jesus said in Matthew 13 he said that God's made a deliberate choice he said to you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom but to them it has not been granted and he he divides between a them group and a you group and God is going to reveal the mysteries to you but he's not going to reveal it to them and then he exhorts them he says take care how you hear For the measure in which you measure it, it will be measured to you. If it's valuable and precious, he's going to give you more. If it's not important to you, then he's going to take away even what you have, so you won't even have what you had. And that's taught in Matthew 13, it's taught again in Mark 4, it's taught again in Luke 8. Three times, Jesus carefully goes through all this stuff and says, now listen to you guys, you better be careful. Otherwise you'll lose everything. And I, I want to ask you, and I think I know, for most of you at least, whether you are in the you group or the them group. I thank God i mean, people say, how, how, how do you get this revelation? And I say, well, I, I don't know, I just sort of sit and God talks to me. When I was a, a new, fairly new convert, had just gone to India as a missionary, and I was actually in the bedroom of William Carey. I was actually in the, in the church that he founded in Calcutta. And I was awed to be in this man's bedroom. I was touching the thing. I wonder what sort of prayers he prayed here. Ed O'Reilly and Judson used the same room. And I was thinking what these men must have prayed and taught. And I was walking around this room and saying, God, this must be a very precious room to you. And I'd already decided that although I was qualified in physical chemistry, I have no theological qualifications whatsoever. So when I go back to England, I'm going to get myself at least a master's in theology, so that I'll be respectable. And I was trying to get, and I was doing a conference in this great church, and it was a youth conference, and I was trying to get revelation for the evening message, and it wasn't coming easily. And then the Lord came, and like he sat on the bed beside me, I was sitting together with him on William Carey's bed. But it was the same mattress, I doubt, but it was the same bed. Might have been the same mattress. (laughs) But he sat beside me, I had this incredible intimate time with the Lord, and he said to me, he said, you're not going to any theological seminary, because it would spoil you. He said, I want you to feed my sheep, not my giraffes. That's what he said. (laughs) So he said, I'm going to be your Bible teacher, and if ever you need to know anything or you want to learn anything, just come to me and I'll teach you. And so I have this incredible privilege of God waking me up quite often in the early hours of the morning and he'll just speak to me and then I'll go into my study and God and I will have a private Bible study when he just opens up to me the scriptures. And that's where I get it from, I get it from God. And I can see now, because it's allowed me to be a bit of a free thinker, because I wasn't trained in Calvinistic theology, and I wasn't trained in Arminianist theology, I've just read all those books, and I've sifted my, I've read a lot, I, I've, I've used my mind, don't misunderstand me. But I've let the Spirit of God teach me and train me. And I, I can tell you without any doubt, I'm definitely in the U category. He reveals to me the mysteries of the kingdom. And he continues to reveal them because I'm obedient. The passion of my heart is to do whatever he tells me to do. Whether it seems or feels foolish. And God said some strange things to me, but I've just obeyed him and done what he told me to do. And uh, I found that as a result, he's pleased with me and he's continuing to reveal things to me. Now, I'm not saying that in any way to boast, obviously. I'm just simply saying that's reality for me, and it can be reality for each and every one of us. But if we, if we are disobedient, we become dull of hearing, and people have got to start teaching us again, the elementary principles. And you don't actually grow, you just stay where you are. Now, let me just say this in the last few minutes. We have the option of living on milk or living on meat. What does that mean? We have the option of, becoming, of remaining babes or becoming mature sons. Now a baby, spiritually, is not a matter of time. It's a matter of obedience to the word. That what's, that's what takes us from babyhood to maturity. And of course, that has to be mixed with faith. Because uh, that's very clear from Hebrews uh, chapter 4. We've already looked at that. It's obedience mixed with faith. That's the, if you like, the formula that brings you quickly to maturity. And there's a certain kind of word, the milk of the word, which many, many people like, which simply tells you, like, it's like it's coming to the mother side of God, the comfort and the love. I love you, and I've forgiven all your sins, and even if you mess up again, I'm still going to love you. Oh dear, you've dirted your diapers again. Never mind, you smell terrible, but I love you, so I'm going to clean you all up again. And your thing you think with babies is they do not feed themselves, they don't even cleanse themselves, they always come to someone else to do it for them. If they are hungry, they cry until someone feeds them. If they're dirty, they cry until someone cleanses them. Okay? But when you come on... And so it's the word of love, it's the word of sympathy, it's the word of acceptance, it's the word of cuddling and your mind and your precious. and that's all that some people want to hear. They'll only go to a church that preaches that sort of message. They'll only go to a home group or go to any kind of pastoral oversight which just keeps smothering them with unconditional love and never begins to deal with the issues in their lives. If anybody starts to deal with issues in their lives, they're off to some other place. Now that can be an individual, it can be a whole church. The Corinthian church is described as that kind of church. Paul says, I couldn't give you any meat because you'd spit it out. So I had to keep feeding you on milk. So it can be a whole church, or it can be individuals within a church. But if you want to grow up to maturity, then God's got to wean you off milk, and on to meet and that means he starts bringing in the word of correction and the word of discipline and it's how you handle that which will determine whether you grow or whether you don't grow and he's saying to these Hebrew Christians he says look I've got a, you've, you've actually gone backwards you ought to be teaching others by now but here you are still battling with besetting sins still sulking when people don't Love you as you think they should. Still offended if anybody tries to bring a word of correction. But if it, and as we, you become dull of hearing. But if you let the meat of the word, which is discipline, it's correction. Like even doing this preparation for the book of Hebrews, I've been absolutely on my face in deep contrition over some issues of of the rest. I didn't talk to you yesterday about the Sabbath rest and what it means in the New Testament. Maybe we'll get time tomorrow, maybe we won't. But I've been really, the Lord's been rebuking me about my abuse of my my body and relying upon his supernatural power to go at a pace which is beyond where I should be. And he said, said, he's given me a certain date because I've got commitments in my calendar. He says, from that day on, if you don't change your lifestyle, I'm going to come and really smack you. (laughs) And I tell you, I fear God and I'm seeing in ways I didn't see before subtleties of the flesh which I didn't know were there but God's putting his finger on there, and I tell you I want them dealt with as much as God does because I want to qualify I don't want to preach to others and then find myself disqualified so I did not think any of us can put ourselves outside and say well that's for, the, that's for the new believers in my church well just, just make sure before you exonerate yourself that God isn't dealing with you over some issues it it, it has amazed me and this is just a generalisation but it's part of the weakness of the American church is how many Promises are made which are simply not kept amongst men of God. It it, it shook me when I first came to this nation, but I realised it's just part of the culture. That doesn't mean it's good. It just means it's, it's amazing how when you live in a culture, you don't even know it's there. I'll give you an illustration of this, which Mohan will endorse. It's part of Indian culture not to tell the truth, but to say what's pleasing whether it's true or not. You, you do not have this crude Western honesty because it's not part of the culture. So as a result, pretty well every Indian that I know is a liar until the kingdom really comes. That's true, isn't it? I mean, Mohan, it Mohan's the other side of this, so he will endorse this. Well, I, I had a Telugu, which is the same part of India that Mohan comes from, I had a Telugu brother, he moved over to the United States years ago, and he started to live finally in Pennsylvania, he lived, and he came to visit me, this was after 20 years in the United States, and he had breakfast with me, he said, you know, he said, Alan, you know, I've discovered something, I said, what's that, he said, you know, I kept getting really irritated with these Americans that kept confronting me for not telling the truth. And he said, it took me 20 years to really realize that deep inside me, there's a twisted part of my nature, so I'm just an habitual liar. And he said, with absolute tears, I realized that I'm a liar. And he said, listen, I want to tell you this, Alan. He said, every Indian that I know, including myself, we're all born liars. And he, I said, I know. <laughs> he said, but you still loved us. I said, of course I still loved you. That doesn't mean I excuse that cultural norm. Hello. And it's been quite a dramatic transformation, which you will see in the Hyderabad churches that Mohan leads, where they are not Indian, they are kingdom. And it's powerfully affected the way they live their marriages. It's affected the way they speak the truth. And there are there are things that are so part of our culture that it takes someone, someone from outside to even see that they're there. But if we get honest with God, He'll show us. And, I'm, and there are things, you know, in my culture or from my background. One of mine is stinking pride. I mean, the British are stinking proud, and uh, I repent of that. You know, we know better. We're superior. And I think, oh, but we're, we're so full of um, caution. You See, the thing you must not do in Britain is to make a mistake. If you go into business and you fail, you'll never, ever, ever, ever get a bank to grant you another loan. Whereas in America, they'll give you several goes. You know, there's entrepreneur, well, let's go for it, guys, which I absolutely admire. I think it's fantastic. But not in Britain. It's better to do nothing than to make a mistake. As a result, it's bred a deep, deep caution and a deep, deep unbelief. And anything so small and visible, I want to shake them until their teeth rattle. (laughs) God's bigger than that, you see. So we need to let God deal with our cultural norms, which may be not kingdom norms. Hello until he can deliver us from the things we need to deliver from. But if we'll hear his word, if we'll let the meat of the word come, then he will bring us to that same total transformation where we're absolutely compatible with our lovely Lord Jesus and these issues are no longer current in our lives. Then he can bring us on into the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood. Okay, let's have a break, and we'll come back in roughly 30 minutes, okay?